You know, as they open the hose line, like any other hose line on medium fog, moves a tremendous amount of air. What it was able to effectively do was to draw the fire up the basement stairs, and it traps our members upstairs. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We are informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Today, we're going to break down a fire that nearly cost two firefighters their lives. They ended up with serious burns, but they survived. The thing is, like so many situations similar to this one, it was entirely preventable. It happened in Washington, D.C. in October 2007. It was dispatched as a fire in a row house, which is a typical fire for DCFD. If any fire could be said to be typical, but things went sideways almost from the first engine's arrival. Here to explain what happened and why is Dennis Rubin. Dennis heads up the fire protection consulting firm D.L. Rubin and Associates. He has more than 35 years on the job and he's been a fire chief at several departments. He's a graduate of the National Fire Academy's Executive Fire Officer Program. And he's also taught there since 1983. Dennis is the author of a couple of textbooks and has a new one. I'll have more about that later in the show. Dennis Rubin, welcome to Code 3. Scott, let me say thank you. What an honor and pleasure it is to be on with you today. All right. The incident we're talking about today happened about a decade ago. What position were you in at that time? I am proud to say I was offered the position as the 25th fire chief of the District of Columbia by the then mayor, Mayor Adrian Finty. Just a little bit more background information is my home. I was born and raised there, uh, born in the Sibley Hospital and raised in northeast Washington, D.C. So let's set up the scenario. Tell me what this particular run was all about. How was it dispatched and that sort of thing? Yes, sir. The case study would take us to Northeast Washington, again, the section of the city where I was most familiar with by having grown up there and and working in a fire station on Florida Avenue in that quadrant of the city. A family was having a home completely renovated. They had brought in a consultant firm to do that work, and as part of the process, they had stripped the floors. In Washington, D.C., a row house, especially after the war, became the typical residence that most families lived in. Quite frankly, that was the home that I grew up in, in the 1700 block of L Street. So I was very familiar, as long as along with the other firefighters, of the construction type of building that we'd be confronted with. And the uh, construction firm had oiled the floors with linseed oil. And I don't have to tell you what happens next. They use cotton products. And in the backyard was sort of the debris pile of all the materials that the construction company would eventually plan on sending out to dump. Well, 
of course, the linseed oil, cotton, and the right combinations with the right temperature and the brightness of the sun, well, it eventually caught the fire. Some of the surrounding materials, the debris from construction, wood and paper products caught the fire. And eventually it seeked out two, and perhaps it was actually three LP gas containers. The 20 pound LP gas containers in the backyard were used for various components from Sanders as an example inside of the building that the contractor had brought on site. Pretty soon as the fire continued to grow, the LP gas containers vented uh, releasing its product. And uh, the way I'm going to describe it is it sprayed down the back of the building with burning liquefied petroleum gas. And before you knew it, we actually had three homes, three townhouse, three row house homes, pretty much well involved. Now, at this point, this was still a first alarm. And so they didn't even realize the fire was this extensive. Isn't that right? That's exactly correct, Scott. The dispatcher was told that there were a series of explosions. The best uh, uh, description our fire prevention and investigations division came up with is that was the relief valves of the LP gas containers venting. That information was transitioned along with the single address. So as the fire companies are beginning to arrive in what would be a working fire, the belief strongly was it involved only a single residence when in fact it had taken hold in three different occupancies. The first two units arrive, and I assume that at this point they they did a, some sort of a 360-degree recon. The way our system was set up during my watch as the 25th fire chief, uh, companies would respond to the front of the building, the first in-engine, the third in-engine, and then the second and fourth in-engines would take the rear of the building. This is the middle of the row, so in essence, the Bravo side and the Delta side are other exposures. There, there's uh, no way besides going into someone else's home. So we had a pretty good idea um, what was happening, uh, although I'm not sure it was fully and completely transmitted to all companies. The first in-engine company that day is a station that I'd worked in as a young person, and they had ran into some very serious difficulty. The oil pan of the engine uh, ripped open. The contents of the oil pan draining out caused the diesel engine to shut down. And so to speak, engine 10 was dead in the water. They were not able to uh, assist uh, beyond parking the apparatus and then walking to the event. Their vehicle was, was out of service completely. The other companies uh, were taking positions as required with the fifth new engine company, which is coming from a distance, uh, and that would have been the Mount Pleasant uh, area of the city by Howard University Hospital. Engine 4 uh, was told to cover the exposure. I believe their exposure happened to be on the D Delta side of the building, and what was not fully understood, it really wasn't an exposure building, Scott. It was one of the three fire buildings. That building was on fire when our companies entered. Did the arriving companies on the Alpha side see all this, or was this something that the arriving companies on the Charlie side could only see? Uh, it would have been the Charlie side. From the Alpha side, it didn't look was that bad. In line with the script. There was right. only smoke coming out of one building. That was the building that the alarm was sent to, 621 4th Street Northeast. Uh, and again, the focus was, boy, we've got to get a company on both sides. 
our typical process. And it was not until a little bit later that we learned that, in fact, three buildings, 19, 21, and 23, were all burning. So what happened here? When the, when the uh, firefighters went inside, what did they encounter? So as the firefighters from Engine 4 made their way into the building of the exposure D Delta, the plan always is to check the lowest level and then work to the top floor. In other words, don't let fire burn underneath you and get trapped. The sergeant, in his own words, took a quick peek in the basement, obviously left the basement door open, didn't realize the level of fire involvement in the basement, and they began up the second stair, uh, second floor stairway. The idea was that they would put a hose line between the burning building and the building that they were in to stop extension at the second floor level. Well, as they got to the bedroom on that second floor, they could clearly see the back porches burning. Most of those homes, the back porch on the second floor ends up being sort of a, an area off of one of the bedrooms where perhaps it would be a place to drink morning coffee or uh, just to have a little balcony space and area. And the, the lower floor, the first floor add on back porch is usually an extension of the kitchen where you'd have an outdoor meal. And for the most part, they're screened in in our city. Oh, there's a lot of bugs and mosquitoes and things like that. So that's exactly what happened. The firefighters recognizing that the back porch at the second floor level was roaring, they moved their inch and a half hose line. That's right, Washington at the time used inch and a half, and they put it into position to be able to attack the fire with a medium fog. They knew clearly not to enter to that back porch area because, quite frankly, that part of the building was the least stable. It was a wood frame typically out on after the ordinary constructed building was built. Uh, and we would then apply water from that threshold, staying on the inside of the home and extinguish the, the fire that would be part of that uh, back porch area. Now you've got guys on the second floor. They originally felt that there was nothing below them. But apparently there was some fire activity in the basement, and that grew. You know, as they opened the hose line, like any other hose line on medium fog, moves a tremendous amount of air. As I can best recall from my recruit training a few years ago, uh, at 100 pounds nozzle pressure, medium fog, 60-degree pattern, it moves 50 to 100 cubic feet air a minute, essentially that of what would have been a 16-inch electric fan of days gone by. So this tremendous amount of air movement is occurring at the second floor uh, towards the back of the building, uh, side Charlie, and of course the basement was on fire. What it was able to effectively do was to draw the fire up the basement stairs, through the first floor, onto the second floor staircase, and it traps our members upstairs the way another member, the nozzleman, described it that day is everything was fine. We were in clear air. We were knocking down fire. And all of a sudden, the heat was unbearable. And then we couldn't see anything. And it happened in just a few minutes' time. Well, at this point, the company officer, who is outstanding, uh, thank goodness for him, he recognizes that this isn't right. So they're fighting fire in front of them. But in fact, the fire is lapping up behind them at this point, Scott. Now, at this point, we've got a real problem because it's coming up their egress point, right? 
Yes, sir. They had been completely cut off from being able to safely leave that second floor. The Sarge had the company turn around. A sergeant is probably like a lieutenant or a captain out west. They're in charge of a company. He has a white helmet. He's a company commander. Uh, that has been his responsibility for a while. And once again, I'm going to say uh, he was just simply an excellent leader and a great firefighter, along with everybody on the crew that day. So a Sarge has him redirect the hose line from what appears to be the only fire was their thought outside back porch on Delta. He has them turn around and face the Alpha side and start applying water down the staircase. As they're applying water down the staircase, the fire is still roaring up there. It really didn't touch the fire at all. So after he describes about 30 seconds of water application, the Sarge makes the decision, uh, we, we got to go for it. And what that meant is all four members, in essence, tumbled down a staircase that was fully involved. When they mm. appeared in the uh, building on the front porch of the building, uh, and they were their turnout gear was literally steaming, two members had significant burns, as we'll talk about in a minute or two. Um, that's when the May Day was called, when they were actually outside of the building, Scott. Now, did this unit have handheld radios? Did any of the members have one with them? Yes, sir. Every member of a company in Washington, D.C., during my watch, had a portable radio assigned to their position. So they had their radios. Thank goodness they had on their turnout gear, their air packs. If they didn't, I think at least two members would not be with us today, the nozzleman and the company officer, which led the way into the building and led the way out of the building. I'll be back with more right after this. Every day, you put your life on the line to protect our families, friends, communities, cities, and our nation. Federal Resources knows the dangers you encounter daily. Whether it's fire, hazmat, or the more recent opioid threats, we're here to support you, protect you, and help train you for your next mission. You're looking out for everyone else. Let us look out for you. Federalresources.com. So it sounds like this all happened very quickly, and I'm wondering if it happened so quickly that they couldn't ask for a RIT team to come in and try to help them get down the stairs, or how that went down. I, You know, again, I, I think you couched it, described it very accurately. Um, I'm sitting at my desk. Uh, at the time, the office was on Vermont Avenue, not terribly far away. I'm listening to the radio intently. A working fire dispatch was called for by Battalion 1, also a very senior fire person that knew his job inside and out. So I'm paying a little bit more attention. But that happens several times a day in Washington, D.C. And if the fire chief got up and left at every working fire dispatch, there wouldn't be anybody leading the organization or looking towards the uh, future or trying to do some planning and development. So soon after the working fire dispatch, within a few minutes, came the mayday, mayday, mayday. And I made it a point during my four years there, and I guess I've probably been a fire chief approaching about 15 to 20 years now. Anytime there's a mayday, I'm going to be in the response group if it's all possible. So, of course, it was that point when the mayday was sounded that I headed towards uh, 4th Street to be a part of that contingent. And, of course, Battalion 1, who was the incident commander, 4th Street Command, immediately called for the second alarm, which is by policy. 
They essentially tumbled out. They're steaming and smoking. What happened at that point? Well, of course, once we were able to do a par and get accountability, uh, the battalion commander, 4th Street Command, ensured that everybody understood not to evacuate the building, to hold their positions, to continue and to bolster the firefight. And as soon as everybody was accounted for, which again was a few minutes later, the uh, focus was to then continue to extinguish the fire. But by then we recognized, and we had a second alarm there, uh, well over 100 members, that there were three buildings on fire. So if you will, uh, 17 on one end and 25 on the other end became the exposures. So 617 exposure, 619 on fire, 621 on fire, 623 on fire, 625 is an exposure if you're with me. And all those positions were covered with the resources that we had. It was held at a second alarm. And once we recognized that, it was fairly quick work to be able to extinguish the fire. But that was just the beginning of the effort. You said your sergeant was a great firefighter, and so I don't want to minimize that because I don't even know who this individual is. But I'm curious if he may have made some sort of an error in checking the basement very quickly. Yes, sir. He was the first to point out the fact that he really wished he would have spent a little bit more time to check the basement thoroughly to ensure that the fire hadn't entered through the back porch windows, which were now completely compromised, cracked and melted away. So if that would have been noticed by him, uh, if he would have actually gone in the basement instead of peeking in the basement, that's where they would have commenced their operation. And I don't think any of the members would have been so critically injured, but that didn't happen. In essence, the Sarge was very quick to point out the fact that he wished he had done that. And I'm positive from that day forward, he's now a captain and doing incredibly well still. I think that he's probably the best below fire, basement fire, floor to floor fire checker that the Washington, D.C. Fire Department has ever had. It only takes one incident like that to get you to learn it. Yeah, you know, again, Scott, it almost took his life. And as I say, after that portion, then in essence, the real work began, we had to get the four members transported. Again, Sarge had received pretty significant burns, both externally, uh, as well as breathed in some superheated gases. The firefighter on the nozzle had pretty severe burns to his arms. And the two firefighters with them for a total of four members, the company was riding heavy that day. The operator, usually typically four members per company that day, we were lucky enough to have five. The operator was back at the apparatus and was unharmed. Uh, a couple of interesting footnotes. The firefighter, the Sarge rather, that was so severely injured, his mother worked with the news media. So you can imagine the pressure that the news media is putting on me and everybody there to get information. And it wasn't quite time to get the information out, but he went to the burn unit at the Washington Hospital Center. They had to have several operations. I believe the, the worst was six or seven operations. It was a very slow, uh, long recovery time. Uh, and our fire sergeant was on a ventilator for quite a while. Every night that he was on that ventilator, um, I spent the night in the hospital. They had a little room set up there. And, and again, 
with an extra abundance of caution, uh, the doctor pretty much assured me that our Sarge would be back to normal, uh, and he's described as 99 or 98% back to original condition. And even though the other firefighter had severe arm uh, and facial burns, he's back at 100%. Uh, again, both had to have many skin grafts, uh, long-term care, uh, coupled with rehabilitation. What did the DCFD learn from this whole incident? Well, you know, one thing that we did at first, I, I think I was heavily criticized for it. And when you do something new and striking and different, you always expect and are ready for that level of criticism. But what we did was immediately launch our own internal investigation. Our investigation did fact finding, wasn't looking for any uh, I gotchas or, or to cause any punishment. They were not authorized or allowed to do that. Uh, a man on a ventilator for five or six days was enough punishment enough, to, needless to say. But what we wanted to do was to capture the moment. So we were so lucky immediately across the street was one of the elementary schools, and we were able to commandeer a classroom. So during my watch on all four shifts, uh, about 400 members per shift, everybody attended a, a half-day program. What they did in the half-day program was listen to the tapes, see the slides, but perhaps got the most powerful uh, element was to walk where the fire started, walk in through the basement, and then take the exact steps that Sergeant did to be able to have a full understanding of what happened and why. I felt so compelled to do that and I'd like to say it was Dennis Rubin's idea that I'd never heard that concept from anyone else, but that would also be incorrect. <laughs> I learned it from Chief Brunacini in the Southwest Grocery Fire. Uh, Chief Brunacini is a, a mentor and friend to all of us in the business. And I, everything that the chief did uh, in that event at, at Southwest Grocery where Brett uh, Tolver died is I stole that to the letter. Um, if you were on duty, if you were not on sick leave, extended sick leave, that is, you over the next month or so did two things, said in a half-day presentation, followed by a, a complete and thorough walkthrough of not just the fire building, but the two buildings next to it. We also felt like, my goodness, we should be able to capitalize a little bit more. And we brought in a, a high-powered uh, firm that built a uh, videotape program about Fort Street, uh, and that videotape program, uh, which folks can contact me, I'll give my contact information later, and I'll certainly email it to them. The idea with that was to preserve that bit of corporate knowledge forever. So the new members, you know, 10 years later would be able to watch that videotape. I can only hope that they're using it in their training division and to be able to learn from the suffering and the blood, uh, sweat, tears uh, of the members and their families that suffered through these horrible, horrible injuries. And we'll put that information on our website. We sure. have a really detailed policy of checking floor to floor. So when you are moving to a higher level position, if you can, first of all, look for trapped occupants. Life safety considerations always comes first. Notice the fire condition. Is there no fire involvement, which is wonderful, or has the building at that level began to ignite? And if it has, you're going to have to change your plan. Control the flow paths. In this case, all we did was actually open up a flow path from the basement directly through into the second floor. That was a mistake.
compartmentalize whenever you possibly can. Compartmentalize for us at this point is shutting doors. I think in the future, we're actually going to bring curtains in and other devices that the fire department will initiate to block and stop the flow of air. Look at the construction features. If the construction features are unusual, such as the back porches that I describe in this case study that were add-on back porches and flimsy at best, make sure that that gets included and sent through command. The building stability is a potential for building collapse. We have another case study that happened in a different section of town where an entire apartment building wall would collapse and we were so lucky to get out of that without any firefighter injuries. Identify fire extension paths. Where will this fire go? Is there pathways through the floor besides staircases? Are there pipe chases, wire chases? Is there elevators, dumbwaiters? And I could go on. Floor to floor above. Uh, make certain that we know the floor plan on the first floor, meaning that most likely the second, third, and fourth floors will be the same, et cetera. Request assistance from command if you need it while you're doing that floor-to-floor check. And then finally, identify and communicate any other hazards that are found while you're doing that, Scott. It sounds as though you guys learned a good deal from that, and luckily it happened without any loss of life. You're, you're exactly right. And the last point I want to make is our assistant fire chief of operations at the time, Larry Schultz, who's perhaps the best operations chief today in America. He conducted a, a discussion and a review of all of our previous firefighter fatalities dating back for about the past 10 or 12 years prior to that event. And what we did is we looked at the lessons learned, the lessons reinforced, and the improvements. And then what we did was to to make up a, a list of things that we have not accomplished. A gap analysis, I think, is the correct term. And then, of course, we worked on those under Chief Schultz's direction to close each one of those items Uh, And I I think we came up with 36 or 37 items on the gap firefighter safety gap analysis. And I think he was able to conveniently and uh, completely close about 25 or 26 before Mayor Finty lost his job. And then the fire department changed complete leadership. Very impressive. So before you go, you have a new book coming out or maybe it's out already. Tell me a little bit about it. Scott, I'm so excited to tell you released at this year's FDIC in Indianapolis, Indiana, presented by Penwell, is my latest title, and that is It's Always About Leadership. This book can be uh, obtained, a signed copy, by contacting me at Chief Rubin, C-H-I-E-F-R-U-B-I-N, at me.com. I'll try to get that turnaround and signed and out the door just as quick. And I would say the same thing goes Uh, for the video clip from 4th Street. Please send me email addresses for that. I'm not going to send that out by U.S. mail. But that uh, book adds to my collection. Uh, At this point, we call them the the trio or the bundle. Uh, The middle book is D.C. Fire. That's the four years of case studies from Washington, D.C. Although this story is not in there, it's many other stories like that and the lessons and learned and outcomes. And then my first book is Rude Rules for Firefighter Survival. So those three titles were all published by Penwell, uh, which again is Fire Engineering Incorporated, which is a great organization. Shout out to my dear friend, Bobby Halton, for his leadership, mentorship, and guidance to get those books published, but it is now available. 
All right, Dennis Rubin, thanks for talking with us today on Code 3. Thank you, sir. God bless. And we put some more information on this incident, Lessons for the Future, and Dennis's books on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash Rowhouse. Check it out. Here comes the trivia question. When and how did organized firefighting start in the U.S.? I'll have the answer right after this. Ever notice that Scott always tells you that you can get a guest's book at our website, Code3Podcast.com? That's because we have links to order their books from Amazon on the episode's show notes pages. It makes it easy for you to get the books, and it helps support Code 3. When you buy Amazon through our website, we get a small cut too. And it doesn't cost you any more to order through us. Plus, there are other firefighter-related products there too. Take a look at Code3Podcast.com. Here's the trivia answer. Organized firefighting in the U.S. began in New York which was still called New Amsterdam, in 1648. A fire watch of eight wardens were required each day, and every male citizen had to take his turn standing watch. And that's today's history lesson and trivia question all rolled into one. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me then. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.